0: We are in a series that's broadly entitled, Only Jesus. That's just because, you know, Christian cultural norms today require you to have a nice sounding title (laughs) just to go through books of the Bible. Uh, We are going through the book of Galatians. If you want to be turning to chapter 2, if you pick up a pew Bible, it is page... Now you can see how fast I turn to books of the Bible. Hey, hey. 1397. Man. Now I don't know if I can preach. <clears throat> to bring us into some context, Paul has been giving some brief testimony of himself Not because he finds himself so fascinating, but he's proving a point. Paul is playing both offense and defense in this book. As far as offense, he's pushing for the correct gospel. Now, don't hear me wrong. Paul's not on the offense in the sense that he's coercing anyone with the gospel, but he's on the offense with what is the gospel. Because there's enough church fights to go around. But specifically what the gospel is, is actually a fight worth having. <laughs> because there's no reason to get together, do church, and be the church if we have screwy ideas on what the mission is and what the message is. Uh, I'm just going to say it. Every time I see a very super progressive liberal church, and I use the word church in quotes, I ask, what's the reason? Because <laughs> it seems there's no power. If we just invite people... To come to a meeting and say, hey, you're fine where you're at. You be you. We'll affirm you in that. Like whoop de doo Let's get together and spur each other on in our messes is what it feels like. And wow, you're screwing up, but you're screwing up in a very good way. Good job. It's powerless. It's fruitless. And it is, in fact, dangerous. And you might be like, that's offensive. Hence the word offense. Paul knows a better gospel. The Bible knows a better gospel. And if the truth offends people, that's how people know they don't have truth. Paul's also on the defense, and that's why he's talking about himself, because he wants his readers to know who they're hearing from. I'll give you an example. I have a friend that I talk to from time to time online, uh, and he's an agnostic. And over the years, we finally have seemed to be able to put our weapons down and just talk more freely. He, Like he knows that I'm not out to uh, convert him with every conversation. And I know he's not out to attack me for my beliefs every conversation. And, and so this doesn't stop us from sharing content with one another. But that comes from more, hey, have you thought about this? And more talking points, not, not as in this one sermon's going to finally make you a Christian. But I started listening to a sermon series last week, and I said to myself, my buddy should hear this. And then I decided not to share it, because if my buddy were to do a little background research on the pastor who's giving the sermon series, the pastor's had a little bit of controversy, and that would maybe make the message lose its credibility. Now, some might say, well, then why are you listening to it, Kevin? Because I can discern things, and I feel like I can separate controversy from what's truth. But the point is, is Paul doesn't want his controversy to get in the way. He wants to clear the air and say, here's what's happened with me in my life, and here is why I'm credible. And so as Galatians 1 came to a close, Paul has given account of his testimony of his conversion and uh, some of his ministry. But Paul had largely been unknown to the apostles. And so Paul was setting the stage to say, God save me directly. I've learned from Christ, about Christ. I learned the gospel from the gospel author. Uh, to use the language of Hebrews 12, that God is the author and perfecter of our faith. And Paul is mentioning this to make clear that he didn't make some deal with some people about a man-made gospel. It's a god source gospel. Now, Paul is going to show here that, in fact, he had to defend the gospel among imperfect Christians. Did you know that Christians are imperfect? (laughs) Well, if you see me every Sunday, hopefully you do know. (laughs) Well, Let's stand in honor of hearing the Word of God, if you're able. We're going to look at Galatians 2, 1 through 14. Paul says... After the events of Galatians 1, 14 years later, I went up again to Jerusalem, accompanied by Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and set before them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. But I spoke privately to those recognized as leaders for fear that I was running or had already run in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This issue arose because some false brothers had come in under false pretenses to spy on our freedom in Christ Jesus in order to enslave us. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. But as for the highly esteemed, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. Those leaders added nothing to me. On the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted to preach the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For the one who was at work in Peter's apostleship to the circumcised was also at work in my apostleship to the Gentiles. And recognizing the grace that I had been given, James, Cephas, and John, those reputed to be pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship so that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. When Cephas Cephas came to Antioch, however, I opposed him to his face because he stood to be condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself for fear of those in the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not walking in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, if you who are a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? Let's pray. Father, um, we are in many ways removed from this debate and culture. Some of these words make us scratch our heads. Some of us ask, what's the big idea? Some of us feel like we're looking at an old marriage fight or something. But we pray that you would open up our eyes and minds to understand the importance of this. Father, that your word is weighty, it's authoritative. That whatever you wish to convict us on, to encourage us, to comfort us from these words that we would receive wholeheartedly. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would be willing to speak to us, that you would move me out of the way. Father, help us to have the grace and the Spirit to respond. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Maybe seated. A few weeks ago, I made mention of the fact that pastors are people too. That you and I, believe it or not, we put our clothes on the same way every day. You and I both need food to survive. You and I are both paying $5 for gas every day now, sadly. Um, You and I have stressors. You and I have problems. You and I sin. And we shouldn't. You and I have to sometimes fight to remain in our Bibles and walking on the road with Jesus to Jesus. I remember whenever I became a youth pastor at Valley View Church of the Nazarene, I had... Moved from this status of eighteen-year-old uh, graduated from high school to literally eighteen-year-old for about a month when I started uh, turning nineteen in October of 2019. No, 20, 2009. There we go. When I had begun youth pastoring at the Nazarene Church, 2008. Not that it's important. Um, my mentor said that he would help me out as. And he was the pastor of the church and I was youth pastor. So I wasn't flying super solo, but he was also there likely to make sure I wasn't preaching heresy. <laughs> uh, I know some of you wish he were still here now to do that. But <laughs> in any case, as youth pastor, uh, I began to see the garbage side of ministry. <laughs> uh, I began to see that, that like there are problems and problem children and odd situations and miscommunication at any workplace... So that whenever you're you're entering this place of responsibility at church, in a more leadership sense, you begin to encounter similar problems. Now, I'm a firm believer that church is and should be differently than just your average run-of-the-mill business. But sometimes there are some organizational necessities that seem to just demand similar structures. And so... When I became the youth pastor, I started having some situations. Now, I grew up in public school, and the Nazarene Church saw a lot of public school kids. But around the time I became youth pastor, we also started receiving an influx of homeschool families. And there were some different dynamics. There were some dynamics of suspicion over me, which was really nice. I mean... Now, in retrospect, this makes sense. What is this 19-year-old preaching to my kids? But I remember parents who would literally come into youth group with their kids. Now, at youth group, we would sit in a circle during music worship. We only had about, you know, maybe seven kids or so. And then we would do some worship and music, and then my brief time of teaching. And Now, I remember all of us youth. I was a youth, too. <laughs> sitting in a circle, and meanwhile, in a crowd of chairs, a good 20 or so feet back there, sat two parents, just just listening in, waiting for me to slip up. I remember a few phone calls from parents who hadn't shown up at youth group but happened to ask their kids what I was teaching, only to apparently misunderstand what I had taught. And I can say that because I would set both of them straight whenever they would call. (laughs) Kevin, I heard that you believe babies who haven't accepted Jesus go to hell. No, (laughs) you've heard wrong. And apparently your child has as well. Let me set both of you straight. Part of me gets it. In fact, I might say all of me gets it. Even so, it never makes it nice and, and warm, inviting and promising and comfortable for the schmuck like youth pastor Kevin, right? The thing is, it would be nice if at a certain age or when people are given a certain position that leaders would instantly feel qualified and pass character tests and flying colors. But that's not the case. And, and for me, when situations like that arose, which they arose quite frequently, it made me question my own ministry. It made me question my qualifications. In fact, I remember having quite the heated argument with my mentor one time. Where he just called my entire love, or as what he would saw a lack thereof for the love I had for the ministry, he called it into question. And by the end of that chat, I was literally in tears, saying, "Wow, this is what is thought about me." Okay, because we as leaders, we we kind of value our ministry, uh, just as a farmer might be satisfied looking at a good crop year or a ranch. Whenever he sees that one year in a hundred where all the cows are good, they're all making money, not causing a fuss. So I think ministers and leaders like to feel like the ministry is fruitful and appreciated as opposed to being held under constant suspicion and their motives constantly checked. I feel like this is the, the kind of milieu that Paul finds himself in. It's understandable. Unlike Kevin who grew up in the church and went from shy, pudgy kid to, Youth pastor overnight. Paul went from militant Christian hater to missionary, it seems like, overnight. And here we, we open in his kind of, we have his open in kind of his first big public debut with other Christians of repute, like Peter, that's Cephas in the passage, James and John, you know, disciples of Jesus himself. Now again, we read 14 years Later, I went up again to Jerusalem, accompanied by Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and set before them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. Now, Dean read for us earlier in Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council. And I mentioned when I started this series that it is argued that Paul is... Or it is, I should say, it is argued if Paul is writing before or after the Jerusalem Council. If you have a Berean Study Bible open in your lap, you will see that they unashamedly take the position that apparently Galatians was written after, because they entitle chapter two, the Jerusalem Council. <laughs> we don't know for certain, it seems like it could be. Um I mentioned, I know none of you probably remember this, but whenever I was preaching in Acts chapter 14, I mentioned that as Paul was coming back from his first missionary journey before the Jerusalem council, some say that's maybe whenever he wrote the book uh, of Galatians. We don't know. It, It seems like as we read this chapter that it could lean heavily that Paul wrote after the Jerusalem council because Paul says he's making a reference that he and Barnabas went to Jerusalem. He's going with Titus. Acts 15 verse 2 said some other unnamed or other believers went with Paul and Barnabas. Paul says he's going because a revelation occurred concerning the gospel he preached among the Gentiles. If this is the Jerusalem council, that revelation could be what Acts 15 verse 1 said. Then some men came down from Judea and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And that's in stark opposite to the revelation of the gospel that Paul was preaching. Paul finishes Galatians two, or not finishes, I should say he continues to say, I spoke privately to those recognized as leaders for fear that I was running or had already run in vain. In other words... If this is the context, Paul has been preaching a free grace gospel. He's been preaching a gospel that says you and I are saved by faith in Christ Jesus. By grace from God who's come to us in the person and work of Jesus. That you and I have done nothing to merit His saving us. You and I have done nothing to make Him look upon us. But out of His kindness and compassion, He comes And he saves if we just believe in him. And Paul is saying, if this wasn't the gospel, if this isn't the gospel that I heard from God who met me on the road to Damascus, that I preach faithfully, then I had been running in vain, right? Why have I gone to all these places and say these things if I've been wrong? They say, you need to get circumcised. Verse 3, yet not even Titus who was with me was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. See, Paul is saying, you know, I got to Jerusalem, and if this is the church council, we didn't even swing the gavel or call the court into session, but here was Titus with me, and and as I talked with those who were thought to be leaders, and likely Peter and a few of the disciples, he said, no one said in the very discussions about the gospel I preached, no one said, well, Titus, you're obviously a Greek, so... uh, if you've been saved, have you been circumcised? <laughs> Nobody brought that up. We don't even know if it was brought up, but Titus wasn't compelled to be circumcised. His faith wasn't called into question. Now, again, if this is the Jerusalem council, Paul's perspective on what Acts 15.1 stated, that is, men trying to convince others to be circumcised, listen to how Paul sees this. Verse 4. This issue arose... Because some false brothers had come in under false pretenses to spy on our freedom in Christ Jesus in order to enslave us. That's a little weighty. <laughs> now, I want you to hear the gravity of Paul's words. Paul, a Jew, saying this about the law. And whether or not this is the Jerusalem Council, it's likely about the circumcision circumcision issue, if you look at Galatians 5.12. But Paul says these are false brothers and they have false pretenses. That means their motivations are not holy. Their motivations are not humble. They're not good. This word spy only happens once in the New Testament. And I'll give you one guess as to where. Right here. Okay. (laughs) Just seeing if you're listening. Some word studies would say that entailed within the meaning of this Greek word is to intently look at something, especially to inflict harm or damage. Or another explanation would say to view something closely in order to spy out and plot against. Do you see that Paul pulls no punches and he's presenting a dichotomy here. He's saying, here is Christ, his gospel, his freedom and grace found in him. And then here are the enemies, false brothers, preaching a false gospel with intent to enslave opponents, enemies. Now, whether Judaizing false brothers know this about themselves or not, that that whenever they try and impose the law on other believers, they are acting against Christ. Jesus is an enemy in this way of thinking. They were spying on our freedom in Christ Jesus. In other words, they were casing the place. They were casing the freedom, looking at where to destroy it. The very freedom found in Christ Jesus, enemies to Christ. Kevin, that's kind of harsh. We'll take it up with Paul later. He says, we did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. See, people came in and said, you need to be circumcised to be saved. That's how God's people have done it since Abraham. There's no need to change it now, so be circumcised. And Paul's saying, you know, that teaching was filtered out and thrown in the trash. It never saw the light of day because it's false. It's not needed. It's destructive. It comes from enemies of Christ. This sort of jacked up, Christ-robbing teaching still exists today. It still persists. Any time when the focus is taken off Christ, it's not helpful. It's not meant to help. It's not meant to assist believers in any way. Hear it this way. If a doctor told you, here's a pill, take this pill, and you will never get cancer forever. And you took it, and that's all the doctor said. But then somebody else came along and said, Now, did the doctor tell you about the special juice that you need to drink once a week? That pill won't work without the special juice. Well, you would start thinking, "Cancer is going to get me anyways." Holy cow! But where have I been? Where's the special juice? And then you would start to doubt the doctor. That's the point. Doubting the doctor. Anytime a church or a teacher diminishes the cross of Christ and says, now, have you been attending church? Because if not, suspect your salvation. Anytime a church or a teacher says, have you been attending church and really considering Saturdays as holy and special? Because, you know, those Christians who don't follow the fifth commandment are suspect. They're not preaching the whole story. Anytime a church or a teacher says, if you've been eating bacon, pork, or ham, you're blatantly breaking God's commandments. And holy cow or holy pig, are you even saved? That's bogus. It's jacked up. That's from the enemy. You can rest in Christ. In Christ alone. We're just saying it. You can rest in Christ. Now, sure, we'll talk about the bacon, Christian view of the Sabbath, church attendance, where that fits in in the New Covenant Gospel later in this series, but for now... While jacked up, false brothers are telling Gentiles in Galatia to get circumcised to make sure they're saved. Paul says, I I brought a full-blooded Greek. That's a Gentile. (laughs) Anybody not Jewish. Titus, before the very disciples of Jesus, and his not being circumcised was never an issue. Verse 6. But as for the highly esteemed, Paul's still talking about his more private meeting with the leaders and the disciples, Peter, James, and John. He says, but as for the highly esteemed, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. So Paul is Quaker. He believes in the priesthood of all believers, (laughs) the equality of all people. He's no respecter of classes. He says, those leaders added nothing to me or the New American Standard Bible would say, those leaders contributed nothing to me. Paul's not taking a slide at them. He's not saying, psh, little help they were. No, rather in the context, Paul's been talking about his own testimony, the gospel he received. And what he's saying is that they didn't need to fix my theology. They agreed. We, he, they were, we were on the same page. They didn't need to add anything to my theology. Rather, the same Christ who met Paul on the road to Damascus and saved him and commissioned him is the same Christ who walked the earth for three and a half so years with all these other leaders. And they both received and preach the same gospel because it's the same gospel that came from the same God. Paul says, On the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted to preach the gospel to the uncircumcised just as Peter had been to the circumcised, that's the Jews, for the one, that is God or Christ Jesus, who was at work in Peter's apostleship to the circumcised was also at work in my apostleship to the Gentiles. And recognizing the grace that I have been given, James, Cephas, and John, those reputed to be pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship so that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So again, Paul's giving full disclosure. He's saying they saw nothing wrong with what I was saying, with what I was preaching, the gospel I preach. The only thing they did mention was for me to remember the poor. So what I got from this is that the gospel isn't supposed to just be a mental thing. See, the same snobbery and self-righteous religiosity that comes from the sorts of false brothers who are trying to sabotage the gospel can also exist among people who might be right about the gospel. See, there are plenty of people I know who may believe in salvation by faith through grace. They're the most horrible offenders, though, when it comes to how they treat people. They think about theology, right? They may have the gospel figured out, but then they bully people around and they overlook suffering and they're infatuated with how right they are and how everyone else is wrong. And Paul is saying, and I and I I just wonder, this is just a theory of mine, if the disciples have a good gauge of character when it came to Paul. Maybe they were thinking, hmm, a guy who used to murder Christians because he thought his Judaism was right and Christians were wrong. So let's not make sure well, let's make sure that he doesn't overlook suffering in people in his conquest of the world for christianity now right as in hey paul sounds good everything you're doing just make sure you remember the poor okay of course i'm eager to definitely paul says paul's gospel that he teaches this gospel of free grace was not called into question because there was nothing to question about it it's the same gospel of the apostles the only difference is, is they recognized Paul was called to the Gentiles to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, whereas they were still calling Jews or telling Jews that their Messiah had come. That is, the disciples were. I remember um, an, a yearly meeting a few years back, one of our annual sessions of our denomination. And the speaker and much of the content was geared towards revitalization, how to bring People into the church. Things to consider. Now, the problem is, is that many of us, I would say most of us, if not all of us in our denomination, we see anywhere from 20 to 100 people at our church. And all the, the speaker and all the content was geared towards speaking towards megachurches. <laughs> the speaker himself actually came from the highest attended fringe Church in the world, which sees easily a thousand or more. A megachurch. So, How to consider, you know, you know, you have a lot of people, you can choose what band to have on your stage. Are they going to be inviting to look at? Well, it may be easy for you, Mr. Mega Church Guy, who maybe has six bands in the chute waiting to get up there. Half the time, we might not have enough members, period, who are musically inclined enough. So there was this disconnect. It may have been a misfire as far as that annual session's, the planners. However, contrary to some cantankerous country church lovers thinking, I believe God works in both. God works both in megachurches and he works in small community churches. One of my friends is a pastor at a big church in Ohio, and he's a a campus assistant pastor, a part of three campuses. I talk to him on a daily basis. Do you know that he loves Jesus (laughs) and he helps others? He loves Jesus and he helps those who minister at the church. The same God who works in mega city, city churches works in small groups, uh, or works in small churches, like Woodland Friends. He works in both. And for true churches, it's the same gospel in both. It's the same gospel to Greeks or Gentiles as it is to Jews. Despite the apparent meeting that Paul had had with the disciples, And how they're all, excuse me, and they're all in agreement and there's no controversy with Paul as far as the disciples were concerned. This doesn't mean that the gospel that Paul was preaching was small potatoes. The gospel, the true gospel as preached by Jesus, the disciples and Paul got almost all of those first apostles, including Jesus himself, executed, hung. The apostle John was burnt alive and he survived it. It's an offensive gospel. It's, it's what got Paul riled up in the first place to murder Christians before he was converted. And so while Paul is writing to Galatians to inform them that they don't need to be more Jewish to be Christian, it is believed that whoever wrote the book of Hebrews, some say Paul wrote that too, was writing those recipients because they were tempted to revert back to being more Jewish, probably because it was more socially acceptable. It wouldn't land them in the persecution they experienced. Some could say in our day and age that being anything but a Christian in our nation could be more socially acceptable. Then we wouldn't hold all these socially unpopular views about marriage and the sanctity of life. Jesus had actually witnessed to a few Gentiles in His ministry. And as you read it, notably, He didn't demand for them to obtain any Jewish practices while they were at it. We're told in Mark 5 that he crossed the Sea of Galilee, basically, to free a de- demonized Gentile who lived among the tombs. And he told them afterwards, all he, they ha- all he had to do was just spread the word about him. And in Mark chapter 7, we were told that he healed the daughter of a Gentile woman. At the end of Mark 7, he came back to the region of the demonized man and he healed a deaf and mute man. And then in that same area, he ended up feeding 4,000 Gentiles miraculously. Mark chapter 8. Did you know that Peter witnessed these things? And then Peter had that vision in Acts 10, followed by a corresponding invitation to come and witness to a Roman centurion. And Paul, Peter declared then, I now truly understand that God does not show favoritism, but welcomes those from every nation who fear him, and do what is right. Then he witnessed the Holy Spirit fall on Cornelius and his household. And in seeing the Holy Spirit baptize them, he then recommends a water baptism, symbolizing full conversion into the God's kingdom. We heard from Dean earlier, Peter's own words at the council. God, who knows the heart, showed his approval by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, Peter seems to be talking to, as Dean emphasized, and I want to emphasize to believers who think that they should be circumcised. Now then, why do you test God by placing on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? On the contrary, we believe it is through the grace of the Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. Now, I built up all this background about Peter because now we get to hear of a time where Peter shrunk back from his own convictions. We read in Galatians 2.11, when Cephas, now I said this last week, but if you don't know, Cephas is Aramaic for rock. Peter is the Greek term for rock, and rock is the nickname that uh, Jesus gave to a man named Simon. Came to Antioch. However, says Paul, I opposed him to his face because he stood to be condemned. In the early church, as we've been going through the book of Acts, we talk about, you can talk about (laughs) megachurches. Central locations of the church, as far as Acts is concerned, seems to be Jerusalem, Antioch, which is where Peter is going, and then later on, Ephesus. And right after Antioch is planted... We saw the church send people up to Antioch, likely because they're saying, oh, here's a big church in Gentile land. What are they doing up there? They sent Barnabas up there. Barnabas went over to Tarsus, which is in this area, to get Paul. And Barnabas and Paul kind of co-pastored at Antioch. But eventually Peter comes up there and Paul says, For before certain men came from James, he, Peter, Used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself for fear of those in the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Now I want to notice, I want to note something. I I feel like, and I could be wrong, but I feel like Paul is talking about two groups of people in, in Galatians 2. So there seems to be, if we note back in verse 4, false brothers basically enemies of Christ. Then separately, there seems to be what Paul might call the circumcision group here. If I'm reading Paul correctly, these aren't necessarily the same people. Because on one hand, we have people who were infiltrating Gentile churches and pressuring Gentiles to get circumcised and follow the law. But on the other side, we have, in my estimation, perhaps a less militant and less hostile group, Nevertheless, a group that still believes circumcision and the law play a higher role in the believer's life. Some have suggested that this circumcision group, as Paul calls it, could be a Jewish thinking that as for the Jews that are saved, just the Jews, not the Gentiles, maybe they should continue their Jewish tradition and law while also resting in the grace of Jesus. Now, this isn't altogether unheard of. See, in the book of Acts, maybe you remember as we were going through it, Paul himself says, I need to get home in time for the Jewish Passover. Or I need, to, I need to fulfill this vow that I started. Things like that. It could be that some Jewish Christians, for reasons of long-standing tradition, they just weren't ready to finish everything in their Jewish upbringing when they came to Christ. Uh, this is fine. Paul writes in places like Romans 14. He says, hey, some are weak in faith. Some say one day is important in the week. Others say every day is important. Some say, don't eat these foods. Others say, eat whatever you want and thank God for it. I get it. And Paul says, these are opinions. Just be fully convinced in your own mind. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, rather unashamedly and bluntly, I'll be like a Jew to win the Jews. I'll be like a Gentile to win the Gentiles. He says, I'll let go of freedoms if it helps in bringing people to faith. I'm about the gospel, not about my freedoms. But what Paul doesn't like is the odor emanating from Peter here (laughs) and his stinky hypocrisy. Now, I can imagine Peter shows up to Antioch. Yay, Gentiles, just like Cornelius did back in my day, coming to Jesus, let's party. I can go for some bacon. Do you have any bacon? And Peter is getting used to this Christian new covenant thing, this sharing the table with Gentiles, loving on Gentiles, and newfound freedom. He can actually do some Gentile things until James's disciples show up for, from Jerusalem. Now, the way that Paul writes, I don't think James was with them, but his disciples show up. You know, there's this interesting episode in the book of Acts, and we haven't come to it yet in our series there, but Paul shows up to Jerusalem... And James demands Paul to do a few things to convince others that he, Paul, is not preaching a gospel that says you can forsake the law of Moses. And it feels like Paul is openly preaching that people can, in a big way, forsake the law of Moses. Now, we'll, we'll get to that episode and explore it when we get there, but it seems that James... Now, this James is not the James as in James and John, Sons of Thunder. This is likely James, half-brother of Jesus and the author of the letter of James. Apparently, James carried with him this kind of air of Jewish custom, Jewish retention. Likely, this middle ground that ethnic Jews ought to maintain some more Jewishness than the Gentile. And this is seen as you study the Jerusalem Council, because James's words are such that he's not going to impose super-Jewish laws on the Gentiles. You can see that in Acts 15, 19, and 20. But as for the Jews himself, such as Paul and Peter and Barnabas, he might, and I want you to hear this word might, (laughs) theoretical, James, might have this influence in this belief, you were born Jewish, you accepted the Jewish Messiah, you probably need to remain Jewish. Now, bottom line, this doesn't seem to be a belief of Paul's, or so it appears to me. So does this mean that the Bible contradicts itself? Well, we never get an outright explanation of James saying or stating what are his beliefs about these things in the Scriptures. And I don't know if you know this, but James and Paul are real people. <laughs> and all of this really happened, and the early Christians had to deal with this old covenant going and this new covenant coming in. We get subtle hints of James's attitude in the book of Acts and right here in Galatians but what do we get very clearly in the Scripture? And what does Peter call Paul's words in Second Peter 3.16? He calls it Scripture. We get Paul's clear explanation of a gospel of grace, and we see that more clearly as we go along in Galatians. But I'm sure you might want to finish our sermon someday. So we see that James's people arrive and the, quote, circumcision party. And some people argue if that's a real designation, <laughs> Or Paul's personal designation. I'm gonna, I'm gonna to incline to think it was the latter, but I have no bets in the matter. Paul feels he can at least rise to face Peter, and he says, When I saw that they were not walking in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, if you, who are a Jew, live like a Gentile, and not like a Jew, how can you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? Now, I wonder if you picked up on that. It's rather interesting. Paul knows Peter enough to know that he, quote, lives like a Gentile. That he is a Jew ethnically, but he lives like a Gentile. You know, God told Peter to rise, kill, and eat all the unclean things in his vision. It could be that Peter obeyed Jesus quite literally from time to time. Maybe he enjoyed some bacon. I don't know if they made bacon back then, but pork. Or other previously forbidden foods. Acts 11:3 tells us that Peter had eaten with Gentiles, which was a big no-no. He was eating with Gentiles here in Antioch, and Paul's saying, "Peter, you've seemed to accept what it means to be a son of Abraham in the New Covenant, so why aren't you doing it when James' people are around? What's the difference? And why the change of attitude? You're starting to give the impression that Gentiles aren't accepted among us. Why is that? See, see, Peter got it. He understood the gospel. But the ramifications or the implications of grace like this, it takes a while to settle for some. You know, it's one thing to voice it, to know it, and to practice it privately, but to go public with grace like this, especially in this era, it can be shocking at first. Here's how I want to close. I wonder if grace has ever been hard to wrap around in your own life. I wonder if you've done things or I wonder if you've ever thought, I still feel beyond redeemable, right? Uh, I blew it. I'm guilty of some things that you don't know. And if people did know, you know that God's grace washes you clean. I wonder if sometimes we can be hypocrites of grace because even though we know how to state what grace is, we still think we owe God something. We think that we still maybe should hide from who we were. See, I'm sure some people have wondered, did Peter read Galatians? (laughs) How did he feel about that dirty closet being out in the open for everyone to see? The same Peter who likely dictated to Mark his gospel account complete with Peter's denial probably had little to hide because Peter celebrated grace. Here's my encouragement. Whatever you have done, and I mean that, whatever you have done, God has paid for. Whatever has been done in secret you can confess it to God. I a thousand percent encourage you to confess it to one another. And you know this, you're still a hundred percent God's son or daughter. You're still a hundred percent saved, no strings attached. You're still a hundred percent redeemed and redeemable. And you still have a hundred percent value, worth, and dignity as God's child. The slate is still clean by God's grace. There's nothing you must do. There's no loopholes you must go through to only seek God, ask for His forgiveness, and keep trucking. You're still a child of God. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Father, we're grateful that the Scriptures are painstakingly true that we get to see blemishes in all of the early church. We get to see that much like our day and age, there's some weighty believers who have differences of opinions when it comes to certain things in theology. It would be nice if we opened up a book and we saw everybody in the same page, everybody thinking the same way. What's important is that they did think the same way about the most important thing, and that is your son Jesus. Who he was, what he did, and the grace he brings whenever he dies for our sins. Thank you that he rose again, that we too have hope to die to our sins and rise again. Thank you that we see towers of the early church like Peter blow it, but then still move on. Uh, Father, we've been there. Maybe we're there too often, but help us to take hope that there's even grace for hypocrites. There's grace for those of us who have been believers for a long time, but We blew it again. Help us to receive your forgiveness. Help us to know that mm, you're not putting a probation on us. (laughs) You're not saying, well, you're 70% saved now. Good luck. Father, that we're always 100% saved. And that you always have forgiveness for those who are humble and come to you. And help us to be humble. And help us to seek not only your forgiveness, but for the forgiveness of those that we've wronged. Help us to have enough courage to confess our sins to one another because that's, that accountability, I believe, is what helps us to be on the path to repentance. Father, we thank you and we thank you for this again, this example of grace. We ask and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.